Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Weakness had on me everyone and welcome to the Bubble Hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there and I hold space for you to share your stories here. And today we have a listener named Lori, who is coming up on two years of sobriety, and she is celebrating by sharing her story with us here today. Hi, Lori. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. So happy to be here. I'm happy you're here, too. Now, you and I have both had uh, the kind of day that would have sent us both into probably we'd be into our fourth glass of wine right now because I am under literally it's September I'm under two feet of snow in Alberta which is Canada I mean I know you think of us as the land of ice and snow but it does not snow in September the leaves are still green so it's crazy here and meanwhile you have been on some kind of crazy uh uh, travel fiasco today. <laughs> Your travel plans went all sideways. Switched flights and yeah, crazy. And the traffic in San Francisco at rush hour. <laughs> so planes, trains, and automobiles. And so now Literally. it's where I am. It's almost nine o'clock at night. We were scheduled to record at three this afternoon, but we're here. We did it, and <laughs> we're going to both have a nice cup of tea after this and put on our jammies and go to bed sober and happy and and no problem right (laughs) absolutely absolutely well that's amazing it really is amazing I I I could not have ever seen myself being the kind of person who can handle this kind of stuff calmly so I I give us both a big pat on the back and sober calm and sober yes (laughs) calm and sober yeah so tell us how you got to be this kind of woman who can handle life so calmly and and so efficiently. Tell us about your story, Lori, and how you got to today. All righty. Um, well, as Jean said, my name is Lori. And a little bit of a preface, my story is, is really one of three generations of addiction. Um, it's the story of, you know, folks doing everything right and still getting beat up by addiction. So that's kind of the preface. Um, I will start off by saying the first 20 years of my life were relatively boring, so to speak. I grew up about 20 minutes from a very teeny tiny town in Missouri. Um, My parents were really hardworking blue-collar employees. Uh, My dad worked at a chemical facility working swing shift, and my mom worked at another factory. Um, Add in my older brother. He's four years older than me, and that made four of us living out in the middle of literally nowhere. Um, We had a few pigs, a dog or two, and I always had a lot of cats who were very much the world to me. Uh, Living so far from town, I kind of got lonely, and I found a lot of comfort with taking care of all the pets and my kitty cats. Um, So my mom's family, they provided quite a lot of my social life growing up. 
Uh, my cousins were really more like sisters, and I spent most of my summers hanging out with them outside, enjoying simple things like chasing butterflies and making mud pies, playing hide-and-seek, playing on the tractors, and that sort of thing. Um, but I was never really very close to my dad's side of the family. Many of them were from a very harsh time, and they weren't very approachable. There's a lot of history in my dad's life that was very clearly the root of not only my dad's problems, but a lot of the pain that promulgated through the rest of the family as well. When I was about 10 or 11, I began to notice my dad always had a little cooler in his truck near his chair or really wherever he was. Most nights he sat in his recliner drinking beer until he fell asleep. Some days he'd stay in bed because he wasn't quote unquote feeling well. Well, I thought this was great fun because usually he was working so hard. And on these days, I could just climb into bed and watch TV with him. Of course, my mom was usually in quite a bad mood on these days. Um, but at the time, none of this seemed really odd to me. Um, as time wore on, my parents began to fight a lot. Uh, as a child, I assumed what I think a lot of kids do, that somehow the fighting was my fault. My mom would be crying in her room while my dad would be passed out in his chair. Sometimes my mom and I would just hop in the car and go visit my aunt and my cousins, which I was, was super happy about. Um, but it was only later that I really remembered my mom and her sister sitting quietly at her kitchen table talking, and they were talking about my dad's alcoholism, which I clearly did not understand. Things got worse over time, and I thought my brother was oblivious, but it turns out he was just hiding. Uh, one thing my brother was always really good at was not talking about feelings, which made it difficult for us to be close. A lot of days, my dad would take us into town to get some supplies, and then we would always get to go to the tavern in our little town. Now, I thought this was great fun, since I got to have a Pepsi and a glass bottle and a glass in a really, you know, little bar, and I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. Um, and then those days, my brother, who was about 13 or 14, would usually drive us home. Um, so then the fighting got worse with my parents, and that started to worry me. Around this time, I began having a lot of trouble sleeping at night. This was way before they really diagnosed anxiety, um, but I'm sure that's what was wrong with me. I was always a perfectionist and a model student, and trouble getting to sleep was making all of that a whole lot tougher lift. My mom was really strong. She was trying to survive both my dad's active alcoholism, work overtime to pay bills, and try to comfort me, um, and she just didn't quite know what to do. My home was clearly getting more stressful. One day, we were at my cousin's, and my dad came into the house in a ton of pain. After he began to have trouble breathing, they took him to the hospital. Apparently, his liver had swollen so much that it was actually pressing into his ribs. He must have heard the angel thing in that day because a great many years passed without him even touching alcohol again. Things were calm throughout the remainder of my school years. I excelled at school. That was really what I was good at, and I lived too far out to play sports or have much of a social life, so... Being a good student and musician was really my only focus. I continued to be shy and quiet as I studied really hard with the goal of being the first in my family to go to college and to be truly successful. I was determined to make all the hard work and sacrifice my parents went through actually worth it. So I graduated at the top of my class and made my family super proud with scholarships, Google work. In the fall of 1987, I started my new life at college. Away from home and so excited to be on new friends, social events, and quite frankly, just civilization. I even began to date a few guys. And right before Thanksgiving break, I met my future husband, Mark. 
my college years were good. I did really well. And honestly, I didn't even do the college drinking thing. After what my dad went through, I was a little bit wary. My relationship with my boyfriend was really steady and we knew we'd be together forever. I was feeling super blessed. Now, the last summer of my college years, because I had to do the four-and-a-half-year plan, I couldn't quite squeeze the engineering degree in four, so I had an extra internship in another state. And I guess I kind of cut loose. I didn't do anything horrible, but I did party a lot. I hung out with a lot of the other interns and dated several boys, even though I was still committed to my my future husband. And I, I made a lot of really bad, rotten decisions. Um, nothing super unsafe, but I went back to college for my last semester feeling really guilty about some of the choices I made. So that semester, I was living alone near campus because for just a single semester, it was kind of hard to find a roommate. Um, so one night, my entire world changed. Um, this was September of 1991. I remember waking up and looking at my clock, and it was 2.22 in the morning. And I don't know that I'll ever forget that. Uh, my room was really dark. In fact, way darker than it should have been. My night lights weren't on. There was a man sitting on my chest, and he had a knife in my throat, and he was wearing a mask. And he told me that as long as I did what he asked, he wasn't going to hurt me. Well, after he assaulted me and uh, raped me, um, he decided he was time to leave. And he said, just give me 10 minutes before you call the police and everything's going to be okay. And so I laid there amazed that I was alive. I was convinced that, um, you know, I wasn't, wasn't going to see the morning. So after a few minutes, I got up and I called 911. And then I went into the bathroom and started scrubbing my teeth and washing my face and called my boyfriend. And he got there shortly after the police did. And I just remember he nearly got arrested trying to get to me that night. He was so upset, but luckily his brother was there with him. Um, I sat in my apartment with the police officers clutching an umbrella. I'm not sure why. Um, was really worried about my cat. I was convinced my cat had gotten out, and the police were confident they got my cat. Um, and I spent the rest of the night filing my report and just trying to understand how this could happen to a small girl in a small town in Missouri. Well, time passed, and they eventually did catch the monster. And I think the worst part about the whole event was honestly seeing his face on the news. You know, before that, he was just a faceless monster in the dark. And then I actually had a face to put to the name. They caught him after he had already attacked three other girls. Um, and I remember the trial vividly. And I remember the judge telling him that he wasn't fit to be a part of society. And off he went to jail to serve 85 years or something like that. So I saw a counselor and I began to heal. And I knew in my heart that this was my punishment for all my bad decisions. And there was no convincing me otherwise. So this was really phase two of me blaming myself for something that was clearly outside of my control. The first phase was my parents fighting, and now this. It was becoming a pattern. After time, I did heal. In fact, I even began to teach other women how to be safe. Um, this guy had apparently stalked me for two weeks, so I began teaching young girls about being aware and you know, just making sure you're making safe choices with how you were walking to college and just even if you're around town. In fact, I even began teaching shooting sports to women, um, and that helped. You know, I really felt good that 
I was taking something bad that happened to me and turning it into something positive. And that would become a pattern later in my life, too. So eventually that Christmas, we both graduated in engineering degrees and we got married. We were living a really normal, average life. I did drink at this time, but very much it was a normie. Um, I began to discover wine and I actually studied it. The chemist in me was simply fascinated by the different varietals and the soil compositions and all of that. Um, now, after my second child was born, I began to have some issues with depression. So I began seeing my counselor again. This was in 97. And I still wondered if my assault was maybe to blame, and maybe I just hadn't completely healed about it. So I talked a lot more about that, and I began medication and really tried to address things. This did help for a bit, but at this point, my wine consumption was starting to tick up a bit. When my kids were four and three, my dad's father passed away, and this began my poor father's downhill slide back into alcoholism. He had so much pain and trauma from his childhood that it wasn't resolved. He simply disintegrated. His first stint in rehab didn't stick, and he came back out. And I remember going to see him and telling him that whether or not he got help was his decision. However, if he kept drinking, he just wouldn't be able to see his grandchildren. The very next day, he went back to rehab. After about a week, he asked my brother and I to come and bring my mom. He shared with us that his counselor had finally convinced him to write down his story and consequently deal with his trauma. I was overwhelmed with his stories and the strength that this took him. I knew how bad things were for him as a child. After this, he never drank again, and he remains my hero forever. Fast forward 15 years. My older two kids, I had three at this time, were in high school, and my youngest was in middle school. So, yes, I had three teenagers, <laughs> and I was falling into some very dangerous habits. I began to use alcohol as a calming relaxation aid. In fact, I joked that every night was mommy wine and cheese its time. I'd sit on the couch, have a glass or two of wine with cheese and crackers or chocolate every night. I lived with the thought that there was absolutely no way I would become an alcoholic after watching the pain my dad went through. Absolutely not. Just could not happen. Well, when I turned 40 in 2009, I actually began running. Um, I was doing this to lose some weight and kind of work on my body image, and I began to feel better about myself. In fact, I even was able to run a couple of half marathons, which was really something of a miracle. I was always the kid in school that pretended to be sick if we had to, more, had to run more than about 100 yards. It offset the unhealthy choices of drinking more wine, but it was beginning to get hard to fit both lifestyles into my life. And many nights, I chose the wine over workout. Um, the depression was seeping back in even more as well. So the stress of dealing with three teenagers at once and a kind of high-pressure job began to increase the need for my comforting wine time. It was still nowhere near a real problem at this point, but my husband was starting to be concerned about the pattern, and I just blew it off. I think deep down I had to know this wasn't right, but I wasn't ready to talk about it. And the longer this went on, I began to feel that nagging dark worry that maybe I did have a problem but I pushed it down. I remember reading an article about a lady who wondered, and then she just decided to stop, and I could not understand how she did that. But she did describe some similar feelings. I actually cut out the article, and I kept it in my desk drawer for quite a long time. In 2012, there was kind of another turning point. A dear work friend began making plans to be gone from work for several weeks, but she wasn't really talking about why. I stopped by her house because she didn't live too far away, and I checked on her, and she just broke down crying. 
And uh, she shared that she had a drinking problem. And as a single mom, she finally allowed it to jeopardize her son's safety. So she was admitting herself to rehab. Well, of course, this was a little scary for me because it affected me very deeply. And as much as I saw me and her life, I still didn't really look at it hard in my own shadows. It was a pretty good shove in that direction, though. She did amazing. And after achieving sobriety, she actually found the strength to lose a job that was causing her so much grief. She moved away to an exciting new future. By this time, my oldest son was in college in 2014, and I was so happy for him. I felt we were doing everything right. My son, however, was not flourishing. He began to show some bad signs of depression and anxiety, and he was just not thriving. It broke my heart. My son and I have always been so close. We're very much alike. I love all my kids, but there's just some bond between the two of us. And to see him hurting was beginning to cause a pain inside me that actually was like a cancer. He came home for the summer, and everyone argued about his grades and what we were going to do about it. I was glad he was home, but I began to worry constantly and drink more. And that summer, I finally came to the conclusion that I needed help. Well, maybe. (laughs) I went into an AA meeting in my town. And then I went to see my counselor, and I told her I thought I had a problem. Well, weeks passed, and I made it to a few meetings, and I stayed dry. Not sober, but dry. Soon I had two months. Well, July 4th weekend came, and at the annual festival in town, I ran into my friend who had moved away. Um, And she, she was the one that got sober, so I was really excited to talk to her. And I quietly shared with her that I had been trying to be sober as well. Well, to my surprise... She told me that since she'd moved away and dealt with her stress and depression, she was no longer in AA. In fact, she was successfully having the occasional beer with no issues. It seemed her issue was maybe not as clear as I thought. Well, as you might imagine, this was not news a newly sober person should have received. So this, of course, got me thinking that maybe my depression was the reason I was drinking too much. I was feeling better overall. So maybe a glass of wine with dinner would be just fine. And as long as I was taking my meds, seeing my therapist, and blah, 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 I could be like my friend Rebecca. And I was an engineer after all. I could outsmart this thing. I could research it to death, and I'd be just fine. What a gullible idiot I was. Alcohol is indeed a cunning, baffling, evil beast. I was fine for a pretty long time. However, as my son continued to struggle, I began to justify his issues and hide a lot of his failures from my husband. We had never had secrets before, and this was not a comfortable path I was starting down. I began to drink more, a lot more. And as my son began his second year in college, 2015, he was living with his younger sister. I was worried about him, but I would have never suspected the root cause would be drugs. My drinking by this time was back to earlier levels and then some. I was leaning on it all the time. I began to drink after the family went to bed, hiding the empties, trying desperately to sneak into bed after waking up at 2 a.m., passed out on the couch. Being smart first thing in the morning as an engineer was getting harder and harder. When I traveled for work, I'd really let loose, but I was really careful about how much to put on the corporate card, and I claimed coworkers were out to dinner with me so the drink numbers would look okay. Alcohol was beginning to be a full-time job. At home, I was starting to do all the tricks, you know, switching out the half-full wine bottles with mostly full, having a stash of beer cans to refill the case, all those things. The more I worried about my son, the more I drank. Christmas 2016, my son was home for break and looked terrible. 
He was thin, pale, tired all the time. During a family trip to a nearby city, it was obvious something was very wrong. A few days later, Alex's best friend called me and said he knew what was wrong. He was snorting heroin and a lot. So we admitted him to rehab. He was protesting, but willing. After a week in rehab, he realized that his drug source girlfriend was really just using him, and he broke down emotionally. He began to recover, but he wasn't quite done with drugs yet. I lived in constant suspicion and worry. Every phone call was fear that he was in trouble again or worse. Every off charge on his bank account or every time he'd ask for money. This went on for the entire semester. My daughter was struggling to live with him. And she never knew how much to say to us. It was clear to her now that he was on the selling end of drugs as well as using. I covered up those feelings and I hid them from my husband and I coped with all that anxiety by drinking even more. July came and Alex was still looking bad. The drugs, the stress, and the dealing were taking a toll and it was destroying me. I missed my son. The dreams I had for him were nothing but a distant memory and I, and I feel like I was grieving for all of that. Well, one day, it finally happened. He got picked up by the police and was lodged in jail with several felony drug charges. It was over the weekend, so we actually had to leave him there through the weekend until we could figure it out. I drank myself into oblivion that weekend, the worst I had ever been. I was completely broken. It was the beginning of my final fall into the darkest part of my alcoholism. To make a really long story short about my son, he did finally have an awakening. It took him many, many months to really begin to see a path, but after a while, he did start to pick up the pieces. He was fortunate with his legal issues, being a young kid with no other things on his record, but my PTSD from that whole event was actually feeling my drinking more and more. I began drinking until passed out every night, and then I'd wake up with just enough time to get to work. I'd spend that 30 minutes on the way to work praying for answers, praying for forgiveness, and once at work, I'd force myself to be perfect. Most days at lunch, I'd have to drive to the park and nap for half an hour. At the end of the day, I'd celebrate surviving the day by stopping at the gas station and getting beer for the drive home. <laughs> that way, when I got home, I could have wine with dinner as if I hadn't been pre-drinking. Every time I got a phone call, I was sure it was someone with bad news about Alex. The anxiety continued to get worse. Anytime someone even said they needed to talk to me, I assumed it was bad news and I was in trouble. I was a hot mess. I began falling down in the evenings, and a couple of times my daughters were home and announced how worried and upset they were. The kids all knew I was bad shape in bad shape, and it was all because of the anxiety. They didn't judge me by any means, but they were so scared. Somehow, I continued to perform at work and manage my household. The only time my husband suspected anything serious was when one night I broke some wine glasses. I didn't even know it. He cleaned it up the next morning and was furious. I called in to work sick that day. I spent it all in bed crying. At this point, I knew I was an alcoholic and I knew I needed help, but I was just too tired to reach out. I began waking up and finding that overnight I had searched on the internet for ways to kill myself with medicines I had at home. I didn't even remember doing it. I was so completely broken and depressed that the only thing I could do was be sad and hate myself. I remember being at my church at adoration. In the Catholic Church, they have a thing where you sit in front of the Holy Eucharist and you stay watch over it, and you're usually, you know, completely alone. And I can remember one night covering for someone else, and I was sobbing on the floor in the fetal position in front of the Blessed Eucharist. 
I was completely shell of a person and no one really knew how bad it was. I put on a good face at work and I declined any social event. While looking on the internet for help, well, hope, really, I guess, I found the Unpickled webpage. I thought that was such a clever name. And I saw and read all about Jean. And she was someone that reminded me of the me that I used to be. A smart, professional woman, a mom, successful. The only alcoholics I'd had contact with in my little town had absolutely nothing in common with me. They were sober 100 years or there from a nudge from the judge still at rock bottom, homeless, and I'm not judging any of these people by any means, but it was just hard for me to relate to them and to share my story. I mean, I just felt like they would look at me and go, what is your deal? You know, you you have a happy family and a great career, you know, that's the way I thought about it. So I began to listen to the Bubble Hour podcast. In fact, I listened to it quite a bit before I even decided to truly be sober. For the first time, I felt like people in me, people like me existed and that I could find some support. And then I found BFB, which is sort of a Facebook women's support group. And that was an instant community of understanding and role models, people from one day of sobriety to a million. And it gave me the strength to say enough was enough. I began attending some meetings in a nearby town rather than my, my own. And much to my surprise, I found some people who were very similar managers, business folks. And so then I began a blog inspired by Jean. Now, this was just for me. I wasn't sharing it. And in these early days, someone said, and I don't even remember where I heard this, to change up your habits. Well, I did this with the discipline of an Olympic gymnast. <laughs> I took new routes, avoiding all my liquor stops on the way home. I bought new outfits so that I feel new. I sat in a different spot on the couch. Um, instead of just sitting where I used to drink a glass of wine, I sat on the other end of the couch. I bought new foods to cook. I even switched the pillowcases on my on my pillows in my bed. You name it. If I could change it, I did it. I wanted my life to feel completely different so I could embrace the fact that I really was changing. And now the engineer in me required knowledge to continue my journey. So I attended more meetings online and real life, both. I read a lot of books. I listened to stories in online meetings. And I heard my story more and more coming from others' mouths, so to speak. The research I was doing helped to validate my predicament. I won't say it was easy at first, but the relief began to give me the energy to get parts of my life back. And I also began to learn about my triggers, and I began to eliminate them as best I could. Now, when your kid is a trigger, it's kind of hard to eliminate it completely. But I did set boundaries. I turned off the Find My iPhone feature on my son's phone. I chose not to look at his bank account, and I reduced the enabling that I was doing for him. Luckily, the courts were pretty helpful by requiring him to be in counseling for the rules as well, and I got some comfort from that. The friendships that I formed in BFB and my ladies' meetings that I found have given me tools to continue my path, but it wasn't until the church retreat that I really and truly made the huge breakthrough. You see, I was still blaming myself. In fact, I confessed sins to my priest but I was still feeling horrible and that I deserved the assault and I deserved all the pain for being an alcoholic. Maybe I didn't deserve to feel any better. Well, I met a priest who pretty much changed my life. I shared with him how I never truly felt forgiven for the sins, no matter the penance or how many times the priest said you were forgiven. And he said to me, and this was big, this was important. This has been life changing. He said, child, if our Lord Jesus can forgive you, who do you think you are 
to not forgive yourself. Wow. I finally got it. I finally got it. After this, I finally forgave myself for everything. In fact, I began to forgive others as well. Relentlessly, in fact. I forgave my neighbor for being a jerk. I forgave my coworker for being a snot. I forgave my cousin Betty, who always dressed nicer than I did and was a complete moron. I forgave everyone. Anything was, uh, anything was fair game. Now, I finally figured out that forgiveness doesn't mean that you think they were right or that you were wrong or admitting anything like that. It just means you're letting go and you're moving on. And for the first time, I really understood that. Now, not to make you think that just because I got sober for a bit, the life stayed on that pink cloud. You know, bad things still happen when you're sober. In fact, on my one-year anniversary, I was admitted to the hospital for heart arrhythmia. I spent a week there while they tried to figure out what the heck was wrong with me. So, yes, I got my one-year chip while in the hospital. Now, I was, I'm still dealing with that, but I'm doing pretty good. I'm on medication. And then on my 18-month anniversary, I was fired from my job. <laughs> Happy 18-month anniversary to Lori. It was a wrongful and flagrantly discriminatory firing that I could have probably sued them for. But you know what? I forgave them. <laughs> I felt like both of these horrible events were tough enough to deal with. You know, all I could think about, instead of feeling sorry for myself, was how the hell would I have survived these events drinking? Holy cat. There's just no way. So this whole time that I've been researching, as I said, I am analytical after all, this disease, the genetics clearly prevalent in my family, the environments and the stories. Many of my close friends have come to me for advice about parenting an addicted child as well as my recovery. Several speeches and a few journals later, I decided if I could write a master's thesis and publish it, I could darn well write a book about recovery. You see, one of the most inspirational things that has happened throughout this story is when my entire friend circle found out what happened to my son. They surprised me with a large gathering to show their love and support. I'll never forget that gesture, but also the look of pure terror on their faces. They told me that they all thought my husband and I were just about the most amazing parents and role models possible. And if this could happen to our son, it could affect anyone. And it was then I realized how little people knew about how addiction just doesn't discriminate. Also, the fact that addiction is not always about defying rules or making a choice, but most of the time it's related to a pre-existing mental illness. It was true in my dad's case, it was true in my case, and it was true in Alex's case. No one chooses or deserves to be addicted, and it shouldn't be over-criminalized or judged that way. So I clearly have a history of taking something bad and turning it into something better. Maybe it's how I was going to cope, but I simply have to take and make a good purpose out of the bad things that have happened. Whether it's an assault, losing my job, an addiction or an illness, something can always be learned and something can always be shared. So here I am now. I have almost two years of sobriety. I have my family, my health, a brand new exciting job. And a book is on the horizon. Um, the working title right now is The Unexpected Addict. I'm committed to bringing awareness of how addiction doesn't discriminate and how this stupid mommy needs wine sensation just has got to stop and how addicts need recovery just as much as they need incarceration, if not more. 
So this is how I'm healing. I'm sharing, I'm forgiving, I'm learning, I'm writing, and I'm doing it all just a day at a time. And that's my story. (laughs) Thank you, Lori. Thank you so much. Wow, you packed a lot into your share there. And um, uh, I'm, I was reacting silently <laughs> on the end of the line because you have been through so much. Um, it's, let's start with talking about the book that you're writing. How are you finding that? Are you finding it's healing? Are you finding that you're having to go back into traumatic moments? What's... What's that been like for you, that process? Well, yes and yes. Um, It is healing. Um, I have always uh, found some way of healing by either talking through something, giving speeches. Um, That has just been my way of dealing with it because I feel like the more times that you talk about and address things, the easier it is. You know, I I always have this, this philosophy of you got this backpack you're, you're carrying around with yourself all the time, right? And, um, you know, if you leave everything in that backpack, it gets super duper heavy. And every once in a while, you got to dump it out. Well, there's some things like my assault or my addiction, they're never really going to go away. And if you two things happen, either you ignore it completely. And then when you do remember it, it's extremely painful. Or if every once in a while you take it out of that backpack and you look at it, you play with it, you think about it, and then you put it away, you've given it that little bit of attention, then it's not so painful. And for me, writing this book is kind of like that. Um, You know, it's going back to those places and and putting pen to paper and, and grieving over some of those losses. You know, I do attribute a lot of this pain as grief because it is a loss. And I think if you look at it that way and you go through the steps of what you do when you grieve, it helps you to heal. So that's that's kind of the way I look at it. Uh, That's really interesting because I was going to comment that um, when you spoke of your of your assault, and I'm so sorry that happened to you. Um, it breaks my heart that, that anyone goes through that. And um, I could hear in your voice, though, that you are able to speak about it in a way that shows that you have had some healing around it and that Absolutely. you're able to objectify it and look at it differently. So I wonder, though... Um, I'm thinking of a book uh, by Gabor Mate called What the Body Remembers, and it talks about unprocessed trauma and how it kind of can get stuck in our body and then come out in other ways. And you sort of mm-hmm. alluded to that when you said that um, uh, that addiction starts with pre-existing mental illness, and I sort of feel there can be a tie, too, with, with trauma, um, processed or unprocessed. Anyway, what I'm wondering is having worked on this and healed around it, do you still feel sometimes like it kind of gets stuck inside of you? And do you feel it in your body in any way? You know, I do. Um, talk about muscle memory. You know, there were there are just so many things that that night have imprinted. And that's how, kind of the way I would describe it. It's an imprint. Um, like I used to use oil of olay face wash. And after that night, I could no longer ever smell that, even to this day. I mean, it's been 100 years. Um, so there's, there's definitely sensations that remain inside me. And, you know, am I sorry it happened? You know, oh, maybe. 
but it is part of me and it's who I am and I have to love myself. Um, and I like to think of the fact that I've helped others, um, you know, maybe either prevent this from happening or heal from it happening. But the stuff that's in my body, you know, either, like I said, you either leave it in there and then when you do have to get rid of it, you kind of puke it out or you deal with it a little bit at a time and you make it part of you that's accepted. Um, that's kind of the way I look at it. But, but yeah, there, there is a physical part of it that, that is in you. I mean, or else you wouldn't remember those smells or um, the fact that the nightlights I, I had in my bedroom that night, I, I don't want to ever have that particular nightlight in my house. You know, it's just those certain triggers, I guess. You know, so mm-hmm. it's definitely a mind-body experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You talked about um, when you did quit drinking initially that you were sober but not dry. Tell me more about what I'm that means dry, to but, you. I was dry but not sober. Dry Sorry, dry but not sober. Drinking. I wrote it down backwards. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, a friend of mine in AA actually early on had explained this difference to me. She's like, you know, if you stop drinking, you're dry. But if that's all you do, you're dry. But if you talk about it, if you read books, if you do a program, if you do a support group, if you do yoga, if you do other things, then that's sobriety. Sobriety is embracing the fact that you are an alcoholic and that you're doing X, Y, Z to heal and recover from it. If you just stop drinking, you might be dry for a period of time, but you know, maybe you're just still on the fringe of still, you know, going back to it. And I liked the way she thought about that so much because, um, you know, it's like anything else. Like if you have depression and you take medicine for it, but you're not really seeing a counselor, it doesn't really work as well. Um, you know, if you do the two together, it's, it's pretty effective. Um, and I think about that in alcoholism in the same way. If you just stop drinking, it might work, but it's going to work a lot better if you do all the other stuff too, you know? So that's what I mean by dry and sober. Awesome. Thank you for explaining that. I want to ask you to share, if you will, what you would say. I know we have some listeners who are in that same position with a child or a loved one of them being in addiction or mental health crisis or both. And it's a hard, hard dark place to be because you don't know what the next day is going to hold. You don't know if you're at the end, if the end is near, or if you're only at the beginning. Um, what encouragement do you offer for other parents in that position? Well, the advice that I would give is, is just realize that you're not going to know. And I think if you accept that, um, that you cannot plan another person's recovery, um, you can support it, uh, you can guide it, but you can't make it happen. And I was trying so hard to force this recovery on my son. And I knew all the things he needed to do, and he just some of them he was sort of doing. So I think as a parent, you just got to get that through your head that you can do your best to keep them safe. You can stay awake all night and watch them and make sure they don't leave the house or do drugs. That's not going to work out for anybody long term. So... You know, I was blessed that we have a family doctor who's a super great friend, and I was able to call him at 10 o'clock at night and go, what do you think I should do? And he had seen enough kids in his same predicament that he was able to give me some advice. So I would say reach out to resources. I would say, um, you know, 
reach out to friends as much as you can. If you can get them into rehab, that's great. And then at some point, it's their journey. And all you can do is be supportive. And the other main thing I would think about, too, is to not blame yourself. It doesn't mean you're a bad parent. (laughs) That was tough for me um, because I felt like I must have done something wrong. But you didn't. (laughs) Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But this person is in charge of their own emotional stability and whether they're in recovery or not. It's not because you're a bad parent. So I think thinking about it that way to just really, you know, like I said, at some point I had to just stop looking for where he was at. I had to stop looking at his bank account and seeing that he took $40 in cash out and wondering where he was going with it. At some point you do just have to draw a line in the sand and not make it tear you up, you know? So it's, it's probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my whole life is to just let him be. What's your relationship with him like now? What kind of conversations are you guys having these days? He tells me pretty much everything, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, The stress in our relationship comes from the fact that my husband's not a terribly emotional person. He came from a super sheltered uh, family life. So he sort of understands alcoholism and addiction because of what I've been through, my dad's been through, and my son's been through, but he doesn't completely get it. So there's so much that my son and I share that my husband's not a part of. Um, and sometimes that weighs on me a lot because, I don't, as I said, we don't really like to keep secrets. Um, but it's not useful to my husband to know some of those things. That's baggage that he doesn't know what to do with. So that part's hard, but our relationship is is pretty good. Um, He still, you know, he went to college for three years and still doesn't have a degree and decided he didn't want to finish college. That's a problem. (laughs) But we talk about a great deal of things, um, more so than probably most parents and children, Um, you know, especially since I'm so familiar with addiction. uh, He's able to open up about some things and feelings and, and things like that that um, it's, it's, it's good. But at some point I have to say, okay, well, I don't want to know any more about that. Let's not talk about that. It's going to start to make me feel icky. So, you know, it is a tricky thing to know when is enough. I feel like there's a bit of a ripple effect, you know, your epiphany around forgiveness and who are you not to forgive yourself. Um, and when you extend that to your your children, I mean, of course we're forgiving and accepting of our children. As parents, it's really hard not to be. Um, yeah. But I feel like uh, there's a, a new truth and resonance to that when we can apply that to ourselves. And then it's not just sort of an action and a or a reaction, but there's a there's a whole another level of depth to it where we can, I guess, demonstrate it to them as well as extend it to them. So I was really touched with what you had to say about that. And I'm curious, how do you, are you able to sort of sustain that level of commitment to living in forgiveness and to extending forgiveness? Or do you have to remind yourself occasionally like, oh yeah, that's a thing. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to lie, the losing my job thing, there's a couple of players in that that I'm really struggling with forgiveness on. Um, You know, it's like, I think, 
I don't know if it was somebody in church said one time, you know, Jesus says you got to love everybody. And he's like, but as a copy love, it's not, doesn't mean you got to like them. <laughs> you just got to love them. Right. So to me, uh, when it gets really hard to forgive, I just have to, rem- like you said, I do have to remind myself, this doesn't mean I'm condoning it. <laughs> it doesn't mean that I'm saying, yeah, you can do it again. I'm saying I forgive you because I don't want to use up all my energy being upset about this anymore. You know, and that's what I told my son as well. I'm like, look, I forgive you for this. I'm not condoning it. I'm not saying do it again, <laughs> but I forgive you. I will always love you, but I'm still going to be mad at you sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, um, the forgiving isn't terribly difficult, but it's it's really embracing it when it's really hard. <laughs> but, right. Uh, but, you know, I, I did actually, you know, I forgave my attacker, Um I, I wrote him a letter. I didn't mail it, but I wrote this long letter and I'm letting it go, you know? Um, and like I said, it doesn't mean that you're saying anything was right or wrong or anything like that. It just means I'm, I'm letting it go. It's not taking up any more space in my life. I'm just, it's just not. I, I heard an expression one time that um, the things that are weighing us down, we can release them with gratitude, whether yeah. it's, um, uh, you know, not to say like you're grateful that you were attacked, but to say you're grateful that you survived the attack and you're you're grateful that you can release it and that you have something better to turn to now. Um, and I, but I like that expression too when it comes to things like letting go of friendships or setting boundaries or with your son, you know, release with gratitude the past because you have you have the present right now. And um, exactly. And I, I really think that we can accept that things have happened without approving of them. I mean, those are two different things. So there's, you know, very the, different, right? The reality of it, um, but it is, it, it does take work. And I guess that's what recovery is, right? I mean, sobriety is is new every day. We we start every day. We don't um, we don't ever graduate. And I feel like maybe some of these other things are too, forgiveness and gratitude. Those ha- those have to be sort of refreshed every day too. So um, um, I know that, um, you know, there's a lot of things that I truly did have to forgive myself for in order to build strength to tackle the next challenge, you know. Um, and, and forgiving people around me simply just frees my time up and it frees my, my energy up. Because, and I've said this before too to other people that, you know, everybody's like, well, my gosh, this thing is horrible. You know, are you you going to drink over it? And I'm like, no. I said, this person's not worth that. My sobriety is worth way more than that. He doesn't get to take that, you know, or this person doesn't get to take that from me. This is too precious, you know, and I'm, by letting them have any piece of me, no. Um, I'm just going to forgive it and let it go, and I'm going to move on with my life, you know. And I'm not going to say it's easy all the time, but, but man, I do I do believe in the power of it because, like you said, your sobriety is new every day, and you're faced with something new every day, and you don't always think, oh, gosh, I should have a drink over that. I mean, alcoholism isn't like that. It's more it's more secretive, you know. It'll start eating at you until finally, you know, you start to have a weak moment. So my goal is to not you know, let those things build up. And so, you know, talking about what, what's bothering you or, um, you know, being a part of support groups or, you know, whatever, it all mm-hmm. goes together. You know, and one thing alone isn't that powerful, but when you put it all together, you know, acceptance and 
um, you know, support and forgiveness, you know, it's, it's all the whole package. I, I often remind people that we don't drink no matter what. So there's no, you can't have a caveat that says this is, this is, this thing is bad enough for me to drink over, like losing my job, Mm -hmm. getting a cancer diagnosis or, or, um, being fearful for my child. Um, and I think that, I think there's a lot of people who surprise themselves when they realize they do kind of have some, like a list of, of terribleisms <laughs> that would be a worthy excuse to drink. And, and if you really take the time to talk to yourself and say, there is nothing that I will drink over. I will not drink over anything because you can handle yeah. everything so much better if you're not yeah. drinking. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, when I, like I said, when I think back to being, you know, in the hospital, losing my job, and all I could think about was if I was still drinking and I lost my job, I would be, I would have been in oblivion for the next month. And as it turns out, I was only unemployed for like two or three weeks. <laughs> so, you know, I just know how that story would have ended. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great point. And I think the other thing is that then that inner voice of you, you know, the shame and the, all that whole cycle of of um, the, the shame spiral when you're mm-hmm. when you're caught in addiction would start to convince you that you deserved it. Like you'd be back to that. I deserve Absolutely. that. And I think when we're yeah. really able to stand in our truth and our power, we can we can shut that voice down and say, you know, stuff happens, but we don't necessarily deserve it. It just happens. And, mm-hmm. um, and to know that, no, I'm really, I'm, I'm standing in my power. I'm living my best life. This bad thing happened. It happened to me, but it didn't necessarily happen because of me or uh, there's, I heard us in a, in the rooms, heard in the rooms, <laughs> the expression, yeah. well, this is happening for you. Have you heard that expression, Lori? I Maybe have. this is happening yeah. for you and not to you. And, yeah. um, Every time something like that has happened, um, you know, my husband's had a similar thing where they walked in and said, hey, you're gone. You know, and as engineers, people don't think about that happening to you, you know, but it does. But every time something like this has happened, we've always ended up in a better spot, you know, and had I been in active alcoholism when this happened to me, I do not know that I could say that. Hmm. Yeah, that is that is a really good thought. That is true. And if we're (laughs) hanging on too tight to the way we want things to be, then we miss those better opportunities too. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I also made a note to say that when you were talking about changing your routine and, um, <laughs> and like sitting somewhere else on the couch, I first heard that on the bubble hour, Ellie, one of the co-founders of the bubble hour was the first person <laughs> I heard say that. And she said she would, she would come home. She would enter the house through a different door. She moved her furniture around so that things looked different. Yep. Um, she sat on a different chair just because repetition can be a trigger. It can put us into rope behaviors. And so really changing everything up, that is a, a really excellent tip, not only in early sobriety, but also if you're kind of, if you kind of start to wobble or if you get in a funk, I find that just like changing your routine and changing your surroundings, your environment, sometimes even just changing the lighting, which sounds a little bit light. And light. It sounds a little bit um, uh, subtle, but there's, you know, all of these things can really shift our gears. So that yeah. is, that is really great advice. That's all it takes. 
is just yeah. to, you know, shake stuff up a little bit. Cause I know when I start to get in a rut, you know, like you said, complacency is, is the devil. So, you know, I'll just go do something different that I'm not usually, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, I'll go do something that I don't normally do, you know, just like you mm-hmm. said, changing it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so helpful. Well, we did it, Lori. Mother Nature did not hold us back. The power of the uh, the flight goblins <laughs> didn't hold us back. We we managed to uh, spend some time together talking, and I'm so glad we did. Before we oh, say good night, I wonder, do you just have any final words of encouragement to someone who's listening, who's maybe having a rough day, or sober curious, or just struggling with with getting started? I think probably the most important thing that I would tell anybody is to just forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't deserve to be in misery. You just don't deserve it. No matter what you think you've done, you don't deserve it. And just be good to yourself. Thank you so much. Um, and listeners, if you would like to send a message to Lori, if this Uh, interview spoke to you in any way or if you'd like to thank her or share your story with Lori, you can reach her by emailing me at thebubblehour at gmail.com and I will forward your message to Lori and make sure that she gets it. I think that that is all that we have for tonight. I know that I'm going to go make a nice hot cup of tea and snuggle my dog (laughs) and read a chapter in a book before I fall asleep. I'm so grateful to spend this time with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so Thank much you for having me. Thank you for doing me. this. And I know that you're in a hotel and you're probably exhausted. So you really gave <laughs> great service tonight to uh, your your fellow recoveries. And uh, I'm so I'm so grateful you took the time. And congratulations on your two-year anniversary. Thank that you. That is a milestone Thank to you. celebrate. Yeah. So that's all that we have for tonight, everyone. We're so glad that you listened to us. Again, if you'd like to email Lori, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I will forward that to her. That's all for tonight. Have a, a great evening, everyone. And until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face a little dignity, not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power, weakness head on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies behind. We think you're strong just cause you keep it on the side. Rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see oh, I did Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Talk to the looking at you in there.
Just want to be free from 